Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the most impressive monuments, hanging gardens and superstructures were lauded, listed and visited as wonders of the world. And like seas, days of the week and deadly sins, there were always seven of them. Later magnificent sevens have included spectacular constructions such as Machu Picchu and the Taj Mahal, or awesome natural phenomena such as the Grand Canyon and the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the actor, comedian, radio and TV presenter, Rufus Hound. In a wide-ranging career, Rufus was a regular team member in the early series of the raucous late-night TV panel show Celebrity Juice and has acted on stage at Stratford with the Royal Shakespeare Company. He has starred in several major West End musicals, a pantomime or two, and presents My Teenage Diary on Radio 4. And Rufus, you've also appeared in several reality TV shows, including one called Famous and Fearless. Would you would you say Famous and Fearless could be your motto? <laughs> well, yes, when they offered it to me, I rather felt like, finally, my show. But um, <laughs> Jonathan Ross made the joke that year at the Comedy Awards, which was Famous and Fearless, or as it should have been called, and... well you've done other ones as well i mean you had a bit of a hiccup with uh, whatever the ice skating dancing on ice is called i think uh, covid ruled you out at uh, one stage but that might have been a lucky break because you may have avoided breaking your ankles or whatever else happens to skaters in that do you know i tried to set up a bit of a joke on that show which was that everybody who does anything like that is it all over the papers and in interviews going i've always loved ice dancing oh you know (laughs) This is a lifelong dream. And I said to their press department, you know, that's just obviously a lie. So yeah. why don't I try a different approach? I'll go out and I'll say, I'm just doing this for the money. It's in the <laughs> middle of a pandemic. It's the last yeah. thing I want to be doing. And yes. then that gives us a bit of leeway. You know, we can tell a bit of a story about a man who comes to find a love of ice dancing. Yeah. Um, anyway, I watched the first <laughs> VT when it played out and it was none of that. And then I was out after a week. So uh, yeah. I basically got to spend 12 weeks with a lovely woman who taught me how to ice dance, uh, which came to almost all use. Well, uh, I mean, these, these various things, I mean, some are more challenging than others, but uh, they certainly take up a lot of time, don't they? I mean, Strictly Come Dancing, they spend weeks learning to dance. And if you eventually win or you're in the final, mm. it looks great. But if you're eliminated halfway through, it's, you know, everyone's even forgotten you're on it. So yes. Well, that's the thing. I remember a TV producer saying to me about a panel show once, the incredibly um, brilliant Dom English Mm. said to me after one show we'd worked on together, you know how you win this? And I said, no, how? And he said, you're funniest. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He was bored of me trying to actually answer any of the questions. Well, uh, we've gone down this route of talking about these TV shows, but what I wanted to stress actually at the beginning, uh, in case people don't, aren't aware of it, is these stage performances you've done. And uh, oh. w- when you set off to be um, 
famous um, and fearless. Uh, Did you have it in mind you wanted to be on the West End stage or the RSC playing Hamlet or in a big musical? Or did you think, oh, I could be on a panel and it just so happens you've got some some offers that came in later? Um, When I was about three and a half, I was obsessed with The Muppet Show. And Mm. I am completely convinced that at that young, impressionable age, something went in that was... The best this will ever get is if you can find another group of weirdos and all put on a show together. Yes. <laughs> so genuinely, I think I've um, hang on. Sorry, this yeah. isn't therapy and I can't no. give you the therapy answer. I'm trying to find the funny answer. Oh, well, don't worry about that. Just just uh, well, because uh, just uh, if maybe I'm uh, make it not lowering the tone, but going off on a slightly different route because you're you're called Rufus Hound. Now, uh, my deep researches reveal you weren't born as Rufus Hound. And <laughs> yes. you've got you've got some magnificent names. Robert James Blair Simpson. Mm. Any any combination of those would be a great name for a West End actor. Of you know Blair Simpson, you could yeah. have been in the nineteen fifties playing something. But but Robert Blair, Robert Simpson, any of those would perhaps more fit being a West End stage performer than Rufus Sound. Or is it is Rufus Sound just nice and distinctive in any event? When I started off, I didn't have the money to go to drama school or anything like that. Um, so. My dreams of being an actor had been absolutely in place from three onwards. If you ask mm. me what I was going to do, I was going to be an actor in theatres. And I did every school play and, you know, spent my spare time in the drama block reading Willie Russell and Shakespeare and all of these things. Mm. It was always what I wanted to do. Got to 19, my family was completely skint and the idea of going to drama school was anathema. And at that point I realised, oh, these are the dreams of a child. And now I am a real man. I must put them aside and move on. However, within a few years of having had normal jobs, I realised that I was never going to last and that I better do something. And stand-up was something that you could go and do. I mean, in wanting to be an actor, I'd always wanted to be funny. um, And so stand-up was something you could ring and ask for five minutes on stage, which is not the case with, you know, the RSC. Um, (laughs) So it was that, really. When I started off doing it, I'd I'd always loved comedy. Comedy had always been my passion, really. Um, Mm. But I'd wanted to be a comedy actor and do that live. Uh, and then stand-up was the thing that, over, uh, that overtook, the, well, the opportunity to do stand-up overtook the opportunity to be an sure. actor. And so and I sat in a cafe with a group of friends and we all said, what would be a good name for an actor? <laughs> Sorry, for, not <laughs> for, exactly, for not that. Yeah, we all a sat good... in a cafe in Edinburgh and said, uh, what would be a good name for a stand-up comedian who yeah. looked like this? And I had a bit yeah. longer hair and a shaggier beard and they said, well, Rufus for the red and look a bit doggy, so hound. But it was a toss-up between that and Jiminy Biscuit. <laughs> I always, I've been around comedians for a long while. I always counsel against having silly names because they, you always find yourself wanting to get rid of them. I don't know if your your memory goes back this far, but you know Julian Clary is a perfectly good name, but he used to perform under the name of Joan Collins Fan Club. Yeah, um, uh, Joe Brown called herself the Sea Monster for a bit. There's a comedian you'll you'll, you'll have known, uh, Ian Cognito. Another one called Mark My Words. These are all funny names, but they're all. Yeah, ones you might want to ditch, especially if you're going to be playing uh, Hamlet uh, at Stratford. I think it's rather good when you see somebody with one of those terrible names because it shows you the scope of their limited ambition from their offset. <laughs> well, 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 Rufus, I'm not going to suggest that. <laughs> that didn't apply to you because you it was a stepping stone. The comedy was a stepping stone. But uh, let's let's get going on your seven wonders. So uh, the first of your seven wonders is the Natural History Museum. Now, why yes. have you chosen that? 
Well, I would like to be more clear than this. I haven't mm. chosen the Natural History Museum. I no. have chosen the Natural History Museum outside only. Outside only. Well, I did. I did know it was outside only, but I'm. Um, I'm, pu- I'm puzzled from the off because that's all I know. Is it because you were never allowed to go inside the Natural History Museum when you were a kid or that you did go in and found the cases full of stuffed animals not to your liking or uh, are you just an architectural enthusiast? Well, this is the thing. It's the outside only, Clive, because yes. I used to work at the Science Museum right. and we were endlessly having problems with um, DCMS not giving us the correct amount of funding whilst also insisting that we remain free and do ever more and ever more. Yeah. So working there, it was very hard. It, it also began my absolute hate affair with Jeremy Hunt, who was the DCMS minister at that time and then went on to run the NHS and, you know, is now ferreting around doing whatever he's doing. So that's, that a, that's the Department of... Uh... Culture, media, and sport. That's and, right. Uh, in charge of funding, yeah. yeah, our national museums. No, I don't know uh, who's going to be listening to this podcast. Perhaps people all around the world, certainly all around the country. So, so the science museum is next door to the natural history museum. That's then right. And over the road is the Victoria and Albert Museum. It's a whole area of London with those museums. So it used to be called, I think, Albertopolis because it was built with the money that uh, Prince Albert was kind of responsible for the the great exhibition, or he was the titular head of that. So it is a wonderful place. Um, This is when you were working there as an adult, though. Did you go there as a child? Did you visit those museums? Yeah, we definitely did a school trip there at one point and, you know, absolutely overwhelmed and loved it to pieces. But really the reason it's outside only is because our visitor numbers would have a big part to play in what everyone got paid. Yes. So if I come on this podcast and start promoting the Natural History Museum, I feel incredibly disloyal because <laughs> the actual contents of the Science Museum are 10 times better than what's in the Natural History Museum. A thousand, a million times better. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why don't you make your first wonder the Science Museum rather than the outside of the Natural History Museum? Because... In terms of sheer wonder, what I've done when trying to give you seven options is think of things that inspire me with genuine wonder. Yeah. And because I worked at the Science Museum in my younger years and in my prime drinking years, Clive, I mean, I ran almost exclusively on ethanol. Yes. Um, was that quite often I'd be staggering back along around that corner and it struck me one night that in terms of architecture at the time that thing was being built, everybody's model was kind of cathedrally. Yes. And the night that I realised they basically built a cathedral in order to put all of the evidence that there was no God, I just <laughs> loved it so much. There is something so brilliant about such a religious-looking building holding all of the evidence that we evolved that yes. I just I found it. Um, I, that's that's what I find wondrous. Is not only is it beautiful architecturally, it also sort of stands oxymoronically, and at the same time demands that you take everything inside it seriously. And I think that seems sort of classically British and wonderful. Yeah, and of course it does have, if you look closely, they're, they're, they're sort of tiles really on the outside, but they have got pictures or, or representations of animals and plants hinting yeah. at what's, what's going to be inside the building. And there's gargoyles and, you know, they're all animally and, yeah, it's, I mean, absolutely glorious and gorgeous. And, you know, in the winter, because they've got all that bit out the front that looks so beautiful, they're allowed to have an ice rink. Can the Science Museum have an ice rink, Clive? No, the Science Museum cannot have an ice rink. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know you're a man of passion, but I don't think the fact that that uh, this, you worked at the Science Museum needs to inform everything you how you react to. Couldn't be more the... wrong, Clark. Once you cut me, I will not stop bleeding. <laughs> and those guys have got it way too easy. I yeah. this is beef. You, you know. <laughs> This goes way, way back. We were doing shows and blowing things up. And, you know, mm. at one point I offered to be shot by someone to prove a thing about material science. That's yeah. how much I was a true believer. Oh, wow. But their well, numbers are always higher because they've got a dinosaur in a pretty building. Oh, naff off. <laughs> well, I, I, well, I lived in London, so uh, we used to quite often go on a trip to see the museums. And um, uh, having got there, there's a long sort of tunnel you come from the the underground station, which is yeah. great, and uh, I, we certainly went to the science museum. But I would say I'd say I always we always end up in the natural history museum in the end. Uh, but so that you 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 don't want to um, say any more about the the design of the outside of the natural history museum, the the, the decorations, the what what it's supposed to represent. It's, it's just a a lovely building as far as in your your concern. Well, I think it's more than just a lovely building. Yes, that's fair. I, I suppose it. There are lots of buildings that I think people want me to be wowed by, mm. but I just think my brain isn't wired up to see those as much more than follies. Yes. You know, once you've been to sort of Greece or, you know, South America and seen these things at a thousand years old, you think, yeah, when people were building them, they thought, ah, this will stand forever. Yeah. Yeah. And really it just sort of stands as a testimony to hubris. Mm. Um, but I, I think what I like about it is all the ideas that play around in my head. Like the idea that they built a religious building to house the things that can show you that we evolved. Mm. Um, I really enjoy that. I, I I think I also like at the time that was being built, when you look around um, the country, buildings that were being built at the same time were often being built for far more nefarious reasons and funded by far more, far more nefarious industries. Mm. And I, I like the fact that if you look at the Natural History Museum, there is at least a sense in which knowledge and wisdom and fact have been revered enough in this country to be genuinely supported. Sure. And, of course, buildings generally, that was kind of um, Britain's century, you know, 19th century. That's where the wealth was. So yeah. you have, uh, you know, St Pancras Station in London, Natural History Museum, um, your town halls up and down the country, municipal yeah. pride representing either Gothic or Romanesque buildings, which look older than they really are. Yeah. They, they look as it's the point you're making, I suppose. Isn't it it? A... It's like Tower Bridge is only from about 1984, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, even the law courts in the Strand, they look like a sort of medieval construction, but they're, they're equally just a 19th century building. But they're, they're, all, in, they're all showing off um, I suppose the the wealth that was available and the and looking forwards as well and and as knowledge opening up as you say. I think it's also that there was a point in the world's history where we were you know the big I am, mm. and the fact that we used some of that for things like public education makes me feel you know rather proud. But yes, it's, it's um, possibly compounded by the fact that I. You know, it's hard to feel that we're going in the same direction currently. Well, I don't know. There's, of course, in other museums, like the British Museum, there's this controversy about some of the exhibits. Perhaps they should be returned yeah. to where they started. I don't know if the same applies to stuffed animals, but I suppose it might do in the end, because <laughs> <laughs> not yes. to the dinosaur, but it may be the sea wants its whale back. Or... <laughs> Do you think that's, you know, if we see a tsunami on the Kent coast, we'll all think, oh, God, you know, yeah. global warming's finally tipped us over. But instead, it's just Neptune asking for its bones back. Who is who or what is your next wonder of the world? 
Um, well, I uh, was recently on um, Mastermind, and my special subject was Jim Henson. Yes. And uh, he would certainly be a character who I would think was wonderful. Well, you've already hinted at uh, his role in your life, and I suppose an awful lot of people, you, I mean, you were young when you saw it, but an awful lot of people even older than you, uh, looking at the Muppets and its various guises that uh, uh, Jim Henson created, was a huge success and remains. Everybody, I think, has a warm feeling about them. You either just ignore them or you love them, really. There's, not, there's nobody I would have thought would dislike the Muppets. Yeah, is there a sense of take it or leave it with people? I don't know, really. All I know is that they have been as much a part of how I've understood the world as, you know, yeah. some of my own family. <laughs> um, I think the, the the mania, the nonsense, the fact that the jokes were so always deliberately bad, and that's, I think, what I've also learned a lot about theatrical comedy and performing comedy. Oh, I thought, I thought yes, that informed your comedy, did it? As a... Yes, very much so. Well, it at least informed my understanding that more often than not, it's less the quality of the joke than the quality of the delivery. Yeah. Um, and the sincerity as well. Um, yeah. But But I, I suppose when you're a kid, you watch that thing because it's funny jokes and funny songs and, and whatnot. Mm. Um, and that in combination with the work that Jim Henson did on Sesame Street, the the... Those two in parallel, mm. um, yeah, I think probably had just an unbelievable guiding force on my own sense of, in inverted commas, what normal is. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, there are lots of uh, lots of characters in the uh, the Muppet Show that he created. Uh, um, would would you have a favourite? Are you a Kermit man, a Miss Piggy? Um, those grumpy ones, the critics in the. In the, Stadler, yeah, see, Waldorf and Statler. Yeah, how about them? You, would you go for them, or are they hate figures for, you know? You... <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think everyone has their favourites. I, uh, I, I, I'm a big fan of Gonzo on the whole. Who oh, is right. the, you know, even amongst all those weirdos, he's the weirdo. <laughs> sure. So, so you're a, a drummer. Have you, would you? Would you do uh, that? Well, that was Animal. Animal oh, was sorry, the drummer in the band. Oh yeah. There's Ralph the dog. Uh, yeah, pianist. Yes. Who was uh, the first um, sort of Muppet that Jim Henson regularly performed with um, and, and was well known to people before he was on the Muppet show? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, kind of an everyman figure, Rolf, really. He, he's not as mad as the rest of them, but there's something about that slouched demeanour at the piano. You kind of feel mm. like this dog's got a few years on him, you know? Yeah. And what about Kermit? Because I've I've mentioned that uh, in addition to acting and being a panellist and doing this and that, you do present programmes. So, yeah. And, and Kermit is the sort of the ultimate presenter figure, isn't he? Well, um, I would honestly say, you know, really, that if I if I ever could claim that I was really great at one thing, it was probably mm. comparing. Um <laughs> I, I won one prize in my comedy career, and it was as best compare. Um, oh, well, well done. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look, is that the same as being you know, Michael McIntyre or Bo Burnham? No, not really. But I think for who I really am deep down, the ability to stand on stage and start talking to people and make that funny always felt like, like yeah. the joy because it's a live thing. You know, I haven't just come out here and delivered my 20 minutes verbatim. I'm actually making this moment funny. Yes. So that uh, always felt like joy. And, and knowing the rhythm and the pattern and, and how to tie it all together and improv through that, mm. um, I, I did always really enjoy that part of it. But then, you know, you're essentially um, limited to earn about 30 grand a year if you uh, if you do that job. And don't get me wrong, 30 grand a year, how lovely. But 
Mm. You know, with a wife and two children trying to live in London, it wasn't really a goer. So you have to park that. But yeah, yeah I, I, I've got a lot of respect for Kermit being the one kind of keep looking off into the wings, making sure the next act's ready and padding if they're not. Well, if you I, actually, if you think about somebody like Bruce Forsyth, he was a essentially a compare of programs, and he was a compare beyond beyond compare. Beyond compare, yeah. And, and but he, oddly enough, was slightly frustrated because he could dance, he could sing, he was a comedian. He he wanted to be Sammy Davis Jr. He didn't want yeah. to be the the host of you know play your cards right but he just happened to be very very good at that and i think he did all right in financial terms i'm, I'm, I'm only i'm only guessing but yeah Hard, <laughs> impossible to know isn't it yeah. <laughs> i now, i think i filmed his last ever tv show oh right um, i hope you weren't too rough on him and, and <laughs> caused his demise no i i don't believe so although i'd have to check the tape yeah um yeah we uh, it was the Oh, uh, no, I don't think it was the last thing he recorded. I think it was the last thing that was broadcast of his. All right. Um, what was that, a, g- a game it, show? Or? It was a Strictly Come Dancing Christmas special. All oh, right. Yeah. But I remember I'd met him years before and found him slightly grumpy. You know, fair enough. Why wouldn't you be? A certainly older man who, you know, yeah. getting on with things and whatnot. And I knew a few people who'd worked with him who'd said, you know, he's Bruce is Bruce. you just got to kind of, you yeah. know, factor that in. So I'd always been a little bit like, oh, I'll give him a bit of room. Mm. You know, I don't need to be another person coming up to go, oh, Bruce, how nice to meet you. <laughs> anyway, I got through to the end of it, and he really shook my hand, and he really looked me in the eyes, and he went, well done, you've done ever so well there. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like looking into the eyes of, like, like a forebear. Like, you know, if you look yeah. at a chimpanzee or an orangutan, sometimes you think, <laughs> oh, yeah, these are the ones that went before me. These are, yeah. you know, there's something really, like, historic about it. And that was exactly how I felt shaking Bruce's yeah. hand, looking into his eyes, was like, oh, you're, you're, you're like a point in time. You're a fixed position. You're a frame of reference. It was quite something. <laughs> Now this isn't really a program for my uh, stories, but uh, I I, uh, inter- I interviewed him once. I was sitting in for um, Terry Wogan, and it happened to be a snowy night, so there was only about ten people in the audience, all of whom were only there because they really wanted to uh, see Terry Wogan, and they weren't. Because <laughs> I, I was, and Bruce Forsyth was my first guest, and I thought, oh, that's good. He's a, he's a good guest. So I thought, well, this is going to be interesting because Sean Connery was my next guest. So these are you know, the big stars, but two Hang very. On. You had yes. two guests and the first was Bruce over yes. Sean Connery. Yes. So when I thought, this this is fantastic, um, and I put them together, this is going to be memorable because, uh, the you know, bringing these two icons from two different wings of show business. Because when Sean came on, he said, oh, hello, Bruce. Now, that round we played uh, yesterday at Tunbridge <laughs> was so bad. We oh, oh, no, I remember. Yes, I remember. Of course, uh, the two years ago when you came out to the Caribbean with me, uh, you were not on form at all. So I mean, <laughs> And I was left out of it. They did did not need me there. So it made for a good show, but not uh, didn't do me any good. All right, now before we leave Jim Henson, because uh, you just mentioned it swiftly, you you he, he was your specialist subject on Mastermind, and uh, was I don't know if we should give away how well you did. On, oh, it's been uh, broadcast. That, now. It's been broadcast, but sometimes people can't. Anyway, you um, you must have been pleased uh, that you triumphed with. Not just with Jim Henson, but obviously with the general knowledge. I, there was somebody else, I won't name people necessarily, but somebody who had surprisingly poor general knowledge who you beat. Um, <laughs> Lee, but, Lee said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you must have thought perhaps you weren't going to win, or you might not be winning as you, you know, were 
going to, coming to the end of the program, but you you triumphed. You're, you're a competitive person like that. I um I went uh, between eight and thirteen. I went to an all boys school where essentially everything we were taught was where do you rank, where do you stand. You know, I I had competition beaten into me, and then yeah. I had ten years of being married to a woman who tried to beat that out of me, mm. and so now I try and both enjoy the spirit of the competition without <laughs> taking it too seriously. But I'd be lying if I said that as somebody who I basically see in the world as clown shoes myself. Yes triumphs yeah. over somebody who I think is asking them to take them very seriously and, you know, that I know things. Yeah. There, there is a little... It's it's not so much a personal victory as I like to think that, you know, the uh, the monkeys won over the zookeepers kind mm. of thing, you know. Because you might have just thought, well, uh, as you were mentioning before, you might have just thought, well, I'd better make sure I'm funny uh, yeah. where it's possible and concentrate on that and not be so worried about getting every question right as quickly as possible. But I, I think you combine the two pretty well. I uh, I do love a quiz. I mean, that that is true. So yeah. I, I thought I would enjoy it anyway. But, um, yes, uh, uh, it was, it was, the outcome was pleasing for a number of reasons, but mainly the spirit of the game. <laughs> <laughs> and you did it for a charity, and your charity was... Uh, the Refugee Council. Council. Yeah. Is Which that a, feels is... now, of course, incredibly political. And yes. yet I was raised at a time where the idea that people who through no fault of their own had to flee from their home and that they could come to this country was like one of the kind of cornerstones of what we prided ourselves on but you know yeah. now i can happily receive a couple of million tweets from people telling me what an absolute scumbag that makes me <laughs> you do run into a few problems every now and then you 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 shoot yourself in the foot with a, a dodgy tweet here and a, and, a, and a remark there do you think there's something about you that sort of spins off um well clive uh you know <laughs> My fear is that having done some therapy recently, I then turn to you and expect you to help me. But yeah, I am. Um, basically, I recently got diagnosed with ADHD. And part of that means there's a bit of emotional dysregulation. So I feel quite strongly when people are, you know, demonstrably doing something crap, that it should be that we're allowed to go, oi, no. And yeah. when people are being really horrible, I do feel like a personal obligation to wade in and get stuck in. And so, you know, I have done stupid shit like defend Jimmy Carr in the middle of his tax scandal. Not because I was saying he'd done the right thing, but merely I was saying, you know, why is it that we will drag out a comedian for doing this? But there are these corporations that we're all paying money to that nobody has a problem with at all. Welcome to Eureka, the show that gets under the skin of science in a good way. I'm Rick Edwards. And I'm Dr. Michael Brooks. Not the kind of doctor who'd be able to help much if you're having like a heart attack. But if you're wondering about quantum physics or the theory of matter, he's your man. Well, probably. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Every week we're asking a new puzzling question from the world of science and discovering the answer with the help of a world-leading expert. Like, will we ever talk to animals? They are definitely talking. You know, that's, again, a word that I would qualify because we usually mean that vocally. But in their own ways, they're talking to us every single day. Are face transplants the future of cosmetic surgery? Given that range of what's considered attractive, there's probably no point wanting to change your face to be more attractive if you follow science. And should we fear an alien invasion? If an imperialistic drive brings uh, other civilizations to us, then obviously it's not good news. But if it's scientific exploration, it may be good news. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about the weird, magnificent world around us, then this is the show for you. Eureka. Subscribe now and find us on Twitter at EurekaPod. New episodes every Wednesday. Eureka is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Let's go on to your third wonder, if we may. What's your third oh. wonder, Rufus? Um, my third wonder is the tale of Phineas Gage, who was an American railway construction worker who, um, as a result of an accident involving explosives, had a railway spike blasted through his head. Yes. Now, normally when these sorts of things happen, I think the gentlemanly thing to do, the right thing to do, is just to die. But yeah. Phineas didn't. He survived with a, like a whole railway spike through his head. And what was fascinating is, even though he was still able to function, his personality completely changed. Mm. And that was the beginning of people understanding that the brain may have localization and different areas in it that were in charge of different things. So that one accident led us... I mean, I mean you, know, you can say maybe these things are inevitable, but that one accident was the thing that led us to understanding the brain in a vastly more superior way. And I love the idea that, you know, we all understand that there is nothing that more complicated that we could try and comprehend than the human brain. And that one of the things that massively opened the door to that was literally just a bloke with a spike through his head. <laughs> so it's a silver lining to a quite a dark cloud as far as uh, he was concerned. So so that if the doctor was uh, talking to him and said, well, the, 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 the good news is you haven't died. The bad yeah. news, you've knocked out half your brain. It's going to alter your personality and give you grief for the rest of your life. But the good news is that in doing that, humanity has discovered more about the brain without us having to force our way into somebody's brain. This has accidentally knocked out some bits of it, so we know more about it now. Yeah, it was, you know, the, the fact that his personality changed so much um, 
had like really genuine implications for what people and you know I, I, um, like phrenology had been an established and respectable science up until that point so yeah it, it's i suppose the thing i like about it most is that if you explode a railway you know if, if you have a massive explosion you kind of think that the only thing that comes out of that is destruction but actually yeah. it opened um it opened the door to our better understanding of uh, you know neuroplasticity and neurology across the board. I suppose even before that, you know, the the mere fact that he survived makes him a wonder uh, in somebody's eyes and in and in and in your eyes evidently yeah, that's the case. How, how did you know about him? Did he just stumble across this as an interesting fact or have you have you played uh, Phineas Gage in <laughs> one of your many ventures? Um no, I, it was again when we were working at the Science Museum. It was um uh, I, I got told that story and it always just made me howl laughing. <laughs> yeah. um, because the other side of it was he was quite a mild-mannered bloke previously and then the spike went through and everybody went, oh, he's got ever so cross. <laughs> and I thought, well, so would you be if you had a railway spike through yeah. your head? <laughs> I, I'm not, I, for the little I understand about it, it's not absolutely clear what the knocking out of this bit of his brain actually demonstrated. Some people looked at him one way and others looked at the in the opposite way. It, it didn't, you know, make a complete revelation of how the brain worked. Uh, no. Just, yeah. And that's why I'm being deliberately vague in claiming, you know, um, what it achieved and <laughs> the like. But well, yes, look, quite genuinely, um, I think it's... Yeah, it's... Yeah. Um, it, it, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm just going to repeat myself. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's hard to know exactly what it proved, but it's more that it got a lot more people thinking in a different way to the established science about how brains worked. Uh, now, so far you've done three wonders, and they all kind of relate to you as either a child or as a young person. Um, now, is that do you think that's the key to to us to know what we were like when we were young? And I, I'm obviously asking that in the context of you doing my ne- my teenage diary on. Uh, Radio 4. So for people who haven't heard it, we're here where you interview people, uh, but they've got to come along with a diary they actually wrote in their teenage years and prepared to have you read bits of it out loud or them read <laughs> bits of it out loud and they get yeah. uh, analysed accordingly. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it started off as a comedy show, really. But what I found was that whenever I tried to crowbar in comedy questions and the like, it was always far less rewarding than just asking people how they actually felt about a lot of that stuff. And often funnier answers came as a result of that than trying to tee people up for jokes and the mm-hmm. like. Um, yeah, I think, look, we all know that you will never love as purely or wholly of heart than your first love. We all know that, you know, when people go to counselling or psychologists, almost the first thing they're asked is, you know, how did you grow up? What were your mum and dad like? Yeah. So, um I've got two children and, you know, have watched various parenting documentaries and read various parenting books. And, yeah, there seems to be a pretty um, widely held belief that essentially by the time you're seven, you've worked out who you're going to be. From there on in, you're working out how that person copes with the world. So what's your next wonder? Should we, should we go on to that, number yes, four? Yes, my next wonder is just broadly the woods. Mm. I, um, I've found a deep deep love of the woods and I will be brutally honest and say that um at this point in my life where I'm not really sure what I'm doing or what I'm meant to be doing next about four times a day I do wonder whether or not I could just get a bell tent and a log burner Mm. and just go and live in the woods and let this whole 
thing just deal with itself and leave me out of it. Um, there was a, a Japanese study done in a hospital uh, about a thing called forest bathing. Mm. And it turns out that just by being in the woods, our stress levels go down, our um, blood pressure improves. There's, there's like endless benefits. Mm. And this all really ties in um, to something I'm basically obsessed with, I realised, which is, do you know the thing about the human year? Have you heard this? The human year? No. How does that work? So if you took... Um, you know, a fraction past midnight on the 1st of January, um, you know, in the morning on the 1st of January, and said that was when the first human being existed. Yeah. And then you said, you and me talking right now, that is midnight on December 31st. So the entire of humanity is mapped onto a year. Yeah. At what point did we stop being cavemen? So give me a a, a place in the year. I think I've seen and heard enough of these things to to know that... it's going to be something like, uh, you know, December the December the 29th or, or quarter Just, to midnight or something yeah. hideously close. So um, Yeah, <laughs> it's December 31st at 6.30pm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so ultimately, you know, we evolved all of this understanding of how to be and how to function and, and yeah. how to get along with each other. And the machinery that we evolved to do that is the same machinery that we've got now. But yeah. we just don't live in a way that endorses any of the thoughts and feelings that that machine requires. So all of that feeling that teenagers have of, you know, am I accepted? Am I part of this or whatever? Yeah. Wouldn't have been an issue before because you were part of a tribe. Of course, you're part of something. Look, you're here. You're part of the tribe. Yeah. Your skills are endorsed. Your work is required. You know, yeah. it's I, I do see that the vast majority of discontent that most people feel is the direct result of just absolutely not living as we should. Do you know the thing about um, the Victorian explorers who eventually talked to the native tribesmen and the native tribesmen after a while said, so come on then. How do you do it? You're so interested in what we're doing here. How do you do it? Yeah. And these Victorians explained, oh, you know, well, we get married. And they were all just pissing themselves laughing. <laughs> going, what, one woman? Yeah. You're meant to keep one woman like, and, and make her happy. All that They were just killing themselves, you know, like, what? Yeah. you all raise your own children. But what if they're being, like, crazy annoying or you've got other things to do? Yeah. It just made no sense to them at all. And when I read that report, I thought, that is it, isn't it? Because yes. if you lived in close community where you all had each other's backs, somebody yeah. turning up and saying, oh, no, this isn't how you do it, would just seem ridiculous. Well, so- there's an author called Gerald Diamond who's um, written about this sort of thing. And, and one part of one of his book, he, he's wandering around a jungle rather than woods. And the kids know all the plants and the, and the trees there because they need to know you can eat that root, but not that fruit. You can do this. And of course... He doesn't know uh, those things. So he comes across as stupid in that circumstance. And none of us know because we know, well, since agriculture came in, we just know how to grow wheat and oats and five <laughs> other crops. And we know three or four <laughs> animals in any area. We do, And we forget about everything else. We don't need to. That's, everything else is weeds or yeah. pests. <laughs> <That's laughs> and that's yeah. just the way. But so just tie a bit more back to woods so do you live near any woods or is this just a or do you go to them or is this just a dream that you would like you know an aspiration you'd like to go to the woods yeah i think it's that when i'm in the woods i feel like yeah this is where i should be this is where humans really belong and you know you can sit under a tree in the pouring rain stay Mm. dry if it's the right tree and um, i I bought some ropes and and a harness so i could like start climbing trees and I've done some green woodwork and sat in the middle of the woods and made an actual functioning chair. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's just 
all of that, the actual exposure and the, the really existing in nature is, un, is I don't know, it's so cliche, <laughs> but, you know, get outside, get into nature. But specifically, I think that from our simian ancestors through to, you know, yeah. our, you know, um, nomadic existence, yeah. especially as North Europeans, there is something about the smell of woodland, just the being in it that immediately feels right. Well, I'm very sympathetic to this view. I'm a big fan of woods myself. Uh, I'm, um, I'm actually president of the Woodland Trust, so I must get you to to oh, join to join in. But oh, uh, I'm a member. Oh, good. Well, th- thank you for that. I but bef- I don't want to just pass over the fact you threw away a line there. Oh, just well, I've nothing else to do, or I'm just going to go off in the woods. The last time I spoke to you, last time I interviewed you, yeah. you were you were busy on stage. You were playing, doing as it happens, the good life, which kind of uh, fits a stage version of the good life, which is a sort of back to nature kind of quality to it and um i've mentioned lots of other plays and shows and things that you've been in you you give every impression of being i mean subject the covid and all the other interruptions a a busy uh actor and and performer are you just being that sort of natural oh you know things could go very bad for us because acting such a difficult task isn't it johnny or or are are you are you saying it times are hard yeah times are hard man i mean you know I built an entire career. Well, I I drove my career towards theatre because, hey, guess mm. what, Clive? You know, even during the war, theatre didn't close, so this <laughs> thing's bulletproof. Yeah. And you know, it was the first thing to close. It, it's it's had a tricky journey reopening. There are things coming back, but people are still a bit anxious. You know, there's yeah, still a sure. lot of money to lose doing those things. And you know, the last couple of jobs I did ultimately weren't what they should have been, and as a result, I think I probably didn't do myself many favors with the producers on those shows um and i'd rather feel now like as people are looking for folk to employ i question whether my name's really top of that of many lists well it's a memorable name not only can you <laughs> not only you can do the job of uh, uh, doing these i mean you did um you took over from james corden in uh one man uh, yeah yeah Two months, Sorry, two one man, gov- two governors. One yeah. man, two governors. So that's that's quite a challenging thing to do. And you co-star with uh, Robert Lindsay in the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Again, those are both uh, those are brave things to. Uh, to you know, you've got to be up there. You've got on your metal for both of those, haven't you? I mean, I don't know if you're going to leave this in this podcast, but I'm glad you've raised this, Clive, because twice you've interviewed me on Radio Four, and the first time, immediately beforehand, I shared with you an off-mic conversation about my experience working with Robert Lindsay, and I don't think I've bumped into you or talked to you since we haven't gone, and of course, work with the great Robert Lindsay. <laughs> so, I'm just drawn to the names you've worked with yes, and, and the people you've taken over. Well, talk about James Corden, if you like, because, I mean, his career has gone on leaps and bounds, and he's, he did other things before then, but as a as a sort of stage performance that, you know, he was, you know, really uh, marked out there. And it's a oh, yeah. sometimes a thankless task to be the person who takes over from Oh, the- God. I mean, it really was. And, you know, I didn't take over directly from him because um, the uh, the National Theatre rather assumed that at the point he left, the whole thing would fold. And yet people still kept coming, you know. So, uh, mm. yeah, he'd done it for as long as he'd done it. Then another guy took over in the West End for, I think, a year. Um, mm. because they thought the show was going to close, they booked the tour immediately afterwards, mm. but then the show kept selling in the West End. So yeah. um, then we had a tour 
further away from the West End, at the end of which that touring company went to Australia um, with the guy who'd been in the, in the West End. And I went into the West End and joined the company that he'd been working with. Um, so there have been plenty of good times. In I'm trying to cheer you up when you're saying you're going to go off and sit in the woods. Yeah, there's oh. there's plenty of good work that you've had to do. And uh, I was very yeah. proud of my work on One Man Two Governors. You know, there's a bit of improv and and um, yeah. being yeah, alive bit, in the moment. Yeah, it's a bit. It's a it's an acting role, but it's also a comedian's role as well, isn't it? Yeah, that was it. When I saw James Corden do it, and I, you know, I was I'm very impressed as everybody was with him doing it. But I, I do remember watching it thinking, oh, God, they should give this part to somebody being a stand-up, you know, because <laughs> somebody being a stand-up, you have to do all sorts of stuff with this. And James, as good as he is, he's not from stand-up, you know. Mm. So, uh, But I hadn't imagined it would be me doing it. So, yeah, I was very proud of the work I did on that. However, it was eight shows a week in a wool suit, running up and down, smacking yourself in the head, throwing <laughs> yourself down, you know. Yes. Just uh, uh, breaking absolutely yeah. breaking and um because of the nature of the contracts that i'd been issued it meant i was only allowed three days off over the entire year and i think that was probably the point at which <clears throat> um realizing the sort of person i am that if i'm on it i'm on it mm. i realized that that was probably coming at the cost of things that other people might have prioritized more highly like life and you know relationships uh, look, we're running out of time. We've only done, um, we've done four of your wonders, so we're going to have to do the others at a fair old lick. No um, problem. Christmas lights in poor places. I have done as your fifth one. Yes, oh, um, I, I may think have... I know what you mean. But um, why, why do you rate this as a wonder? Um, uh, having worked at the science museum and being an atheist and all of these things, I'm very given to you know. Don't lie about it. Just tell the truth. The facts, you know, the world is wonderful enough. As a result of which, all notions of magic and that just pass me by and leave me cold. Or at least did until four or five years ago when my son was at exactly that right age to be, you know, in love with Christmas. Mm. And at that point, I suddenly just saw everything in an incredibly different way. And it was that as mean as I think people can be and selfish as self-serving as people can be, if you walk down a residential street in, you know, in December, people have put out all these lights. Mm. Now, you know, Christmas is obviously adopted from a pagan festival. So it is this understanding that all throughout our human history, at its darkest, coldest and shortest and most miserable, as a gang, we decided to try and make it the most cheerful and happiest and most together and most loving. Mm. And I really do think that is magic. So, yeah, I wrote Christmas Lights in Poor Places. You know, I could have said, I, I guess, economically disadvantaged places. Mm. But, you know, I gig all over the country and I've got, you know, mates across all socioeconomic groups. So I think... Sometimes on Twitter, people have thrown at me like, oh, yeah, all right for you, Johnny London millionaire. And I think, oh, yeah, I wish. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm all over the country. But specifically, if I'm somewhere really poor and I see Christmas lights, it can make me cry. Yes. Because I recognise that within that, it's not about money. It's not about what you've got. It's about choosing to take what little you have and turn that into joy and magic and hope and love. 
And on a slightly more superficial level, I know, I know what you mean. I, there, there are places I go past in, in December that have got these things, and they, they're year on year. They sometimes get bigger and bigger. And <laughs> yeah. Eventually, somebody's putting out. He's got. He could be, could have Father Christmas. He could could have a nativity scene or both. He can have angels. Yeah. He have stars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's lights, there. and it's just. And if you see it in. Uh, you know, Regent Street or Oxford Street. Well, it's sort of oh, it's there to encourage shoppers, which is a, a different aspect of it. This is just for the joy of it. It's a, yeah. sometimes they collect, you know, money for charity by people coming to visit it. But uh, usually, it's just there. It's just what you do. You oh. might be a little bit competitive with the guy over the road. But other than that, <laughs> you're just do you're just doing it. And but I suppose that you know that magic of people coming together at Yuletide, but also it's the Christ the, the simplest part of the Christian message as well is is bound up in. Um, in in the nativity story however um fanciful the story is it's it's a well, child we, being I mean, born you you asked me about my teenage diary and i've largely uh, answered that question by saying everybody loves an origin story you know that's why mm. they that's why every spider-man movie or you know they, why they keep rebooting spider-man and every batman they reboot it's like people love that origin story and i, I guess we feel the same about the christ well i hope i'm not doing your your that wonder disservice by so we've noted it no that's uh, fine you, you've explained it let's go on to number six which um i've i've got the advanced knowledge of what they are but this is the good place uh, but it's the nbc sitcom now not everybody is going to be familiar with the the sitcom the good place no I, I can't pretend i've ever seen it so so why has this above all the sitcoms or of all the other television programs and indeed anything else in the world other than the other six why does this make it as a your wonder of the world um mike sure is a man who has been partly responsible for bringing the office from the uk to america i say bringing i guess taking yes <laughs> um, acquiring um, it for yeah yes yeah, so adapting for yeah um, so they'd adapted The Office and obviously that became this, I mean, you know, it's still revered now in America as being possibly in the top three sitcoms of all time. Yeah, it's an interesting one, though, isn't it? Because The Office in this country was such a huge success. Sometimes you make it another country, it's, especially in America, it's, it's not very, but The Office in America is in its own way uh, a a huger success in terms of quantity anyway. Yes. Mm. Often those adaptations don't really work, but in the hands of Mike Shure and Greg Daniels, that adaptation did to the point where they looked at making their own spin-off, which became Parks and Rec. Um, then they created Brooklyn Nine-Nine. At, the, at that point, they'd had all these hugely successful sitcoms and NBC said to Mike Shure, OK, look, you bring us a project and we'll make it. Yes. And <laughs> Mike Shure, because he's a just phenomenal human being, thought to himself, well, look, you know, if I do... Hey, there's a family and the dad's a bit grumpy. <laughs> what a wasted opportunity. If they're yeah. really going to kind of wave through anything on the grounds that they think I can pull it off, then I want to do something that nobody else would ever attempt to do. Mm. And so Mike Shaw turned 500 years of ethical philosophy into a sitcom. Yeah. And how you, because that's already such a daft idea that how would you then make it funny and not po-faced? How would yeah. you then actually care about the characters rather than just thinking, oh, these are all just at the service of the narrative? It's on every conceivable level of comedy, how comedy works, how comedy's performed, how comedy's edited, how comedy's written. And then the meta, all of that, is how what can comedy be? Because mm. comedy, when well-utilised, can be just as affecting and just as effective as big, serious dramas, but people don't trust that it can. 
So it's not set, so this is not set in a suburban street like The Good Life or yes, sorry, less good. No, but so so uh, I'm not sure you can answer this entirely uh, because there's, there's there's more to it. There's no, more, don't so even say it, that. Where don't, where where is it set? <laughs> yes, quite so. So the good place is set in the good place, a, a, a version of heaven mm. in which a woman called Eleanor Shellstrop, who has recently died opens her eyes and is welcomed by the architect of The Good Place, um, who's uh, played by Ted Danson. Yes. Um, so it's Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. In the opening scene, he basically says, welcome to heaven. Yeah. Now, the secret is that Eleanor shouldn't be there. Yeah. So now you've got somebody who's in heaven who just doesn't deserve to be in heaven and thus, we open the door on the ethics of what makes a good person, what would leave all these people in heaven. Um, and one of the most interesting things to me, the thing I would largely say to people to compel them to watch it, is that Mike Shaw is also um, very good friends with the man that created Lost. Um, and Lost was a TV show that people loved, but the longer it went on, the story just dribbled and dribbled and dribbled away. Yeah. So the man that created that, Damon Lindelof said to him, uh, when Mike Shaw was talking to him, said, look, of course they want you to make more and more and more. You know, yeah. you want to keep everybody employed. You want to do that. Yeah. But I promise you, you want to tell your story in the time that you want to tell your story and just get out, leave it. Right. You're done. And, and they um, did that. And, and well, Damon Lindelof then did that on a show called The Leftovers. And if you've never seen The Leftovers, oh my God, you have to watch The Leftovers. It's it's unlike anything you'll ever see in your life. It's so brilliant. So watch that. So yes, he he nailed that with um, The Leftovers. But Mike Shaw, knowing that, had this amazingly brilliant, wonderful, clever, thoughtful, moving, joyous, silly sitcom that was picking up steam and beginning to be a real, real award bait. And at its absolute peak, he said, yeah, you've got 12 more episodes, this and then it's done. Mm. And when you watch those, that whole thing together, it, it is just perfection. It, right. well, it, it does every part of everything it does perfectly. Well, you make a very good case for it. I mean, I've, 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 I understand a bit about it before coming to this uh, conversation, but you make a very good advocate uh, for the programme. And as you say, you've got... Two, uh, well, those two and other high-quality comedy actors, yes, uh, but set in a much more complicated universe uh, yeah. than you than you normally get. That's right, and you know the art design, the jokes in the background, the, even the special effects. Mm. It, it, like honestly, every beat of it has been attended to. It's it's yeah. even if even if you don't care at all about ethical philosophy, even if you're not <laughs> thinking, oh, that sounds like something I'd like to watch. If you just want to watch something funny that isn't, you know, that isn't mindless, yes, then you know you should watch it just for those grounds because it's certainly funny enough to stand on its own as a piece of comedy. But moreover, actually, if you can watch The Good Place and get to the last episode of it and not think that they wrote a thing that stands and belongs in the pantheon of writings about the human experience, the beauty of life, the necessity of death. Well, you're a better man than I. All right. Well, you've inspired me to want to go away and get a book set of the whole thing. Um, okay, you, we've come to your last wonder. So tell me uh, again. It's a who or what is your your seventh wonder? Yeah, um, I've chosen Ben Folds. Um, mm. The music of Ben Folds Five uh, arrived on these shores, I think, in about 1995. He 
him and his compatriots had decided they wanted to be a rock band, but without the traditional setup of being guitar led. So it was uh, bass, drums, and then Ben Folds on piano doing all sorts of brutal and heavy rock and roll things on the piano. Mm. But just his musicianship, his ability, his ear, his tone, his sense of humour rang with me on his first single, uh, Whatever and Ever Are Men. Yeah. Um, and honestly, from that single onwards, I've bought every album he's ever made, you know, seen him in concert a number of times. For my 40th birthday, I um, flew, I was on a family holiday mm. <laughs> and my wife gave me permission. I found out that Ben Folds was playing a double-headed show with a band called Cake, who um, listeners may remember um, wrote, uh, had a hit in this country with a song called The Distance. Mm -hmm. um, he was playing double-headed shows on a small tour with them, and my wife gave me permission to leave the south of France for 40 hours, fly to New York, watch these guys play a show, and then fly immediately back to the family holiday. Well, I mean, that's an astonishing story in itself. I don't, um, I, I don't know if that reinforced your relationship or damaged your relationship with your wife, but uh, um, obviously you must have been grateful at the time. Now, that's a long way to go and see. Couldn't you... Um, um, couldn't you have waited for the, you then playing a concert in, in England, uh, which might have been happening somewhat, or at a time in America where you might be going there anyway, rather than interrupting a holiday in France? Well, these, these double-headed shows where it was Ben Folds and Cake was only happening 12 shows. And I turned to my wife and went, oh, my God. that would." We'd actually weirdly had a conversation in the car the week before we were playing a game of, like, what's the band that you never saw that you wish you could have seen? Yeah. You know, and it's come up with various answers. But I said to my wife at that point, actually, I think it might be cake <laughs> because um, they're kind of like lo-fi indie horns, kind of yeah. slightly sexy thrumming vibe. Yeah. I was like, I would have loved to have seen them. Yeah. And then literally a couple of weeks later, we're on holiday and it turned out they were playing a double-headed show with one of my favourite human beings alive. While I was on that holiday, by the way, I say holiday, while I was on that trip, yes. I, um, I saved a man's life. Oh, wow. Well, tell um, us about that. Uh, well, I was staying with some friends of mine in New York that I'd only met on holiday six months previously. <laughs> oh, no. You're the... Yeah. So they said, you must, come, you must come and visit us in New York sometime. And yeah. you turn up. That's already a... Um... Horrifying. Yes, horrifying for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite so. Um, they were American. It turns out a lot of the time when those people say those sorts of things, they mean them. Oh, you know, they meant it, not like the British yeah. way of saying, you must, you must come and visit us. We must have Which lunch sometime. Only ever means if you ever darken my doorstep <laughs> yeah. again, you know, I yeah. curse you by the old gods and the new. Um, yeah, no, so I, I, I stayed with them. Anyway, they, to welcome me to New York, took me on a right old night out. Oh, Clive, the fun we had. Yes. Um, finished the show. I only had a few hours till the plane left, so it was either I'm going to go to yours and like literally sleep and then get up and get on the plane, or we'll just try and fill all of this time. And because mm. New York is the city that never sleeps, they were like, great, let's just go out. So we went out, and um, we had a few hours to kill, and we ended up back at theirs. One was a bit tired, the other not quite so much, so the tired guy went to bed the other guy stayed up with me and we i mean don't get me wrong clive you know we'd had a few sherbets don't yeah, get me wrong yeah. but after a while he really started like flagging you know like flagging mm. flagging flagging and he was sort of really slurring his words and i'm thinking there's no reason for him to be like this at all 
But then he started snoring. He'd sort of fallen asleep. I found this all very funny. Yeah. But he was snoring in a way where it was like his throat was folded in on itself. I felt very uneasy about this. So I, I tipped his head back and the snoring stopped, but it immediately lolled forward again. Anyway, I, you know, look, I'm enough of a lad, Clive, where I've been around people who've overindulged and I didn't necessarily know what was going on, but what could I do? So I'm in these guys' house. I don't know where anything is. <laughs> I looked around. Because they didn't have kids, they didn't have any kind of plastic things. It's all very jazzy, lovely things. So I found this designer porcelain bin. I put that between his legs. I got all the sofa cushions and flumped them round him to sort of put him in <laughs> some kind of position because I wanted him to stay back. But his head kept rolling forward, and every time it did, he was going <laughs> like that. So I found some gaffer tape, and I gaffer taped his head up to the back of the sofa <laughs> to, like, clear the airway, you know. Mm. So I did all of that. In the morning, his other half got up and said, what the fuck happened here? <laughs> <laughs> And I explained, and he rolled his eyes and went, oh, God, you know, I've been with this guy for years. He always is like, you know, this is just what happens. He's, uh, he's overdone it, you know, mm. not to worry. So hit me and the other guy then leave the flat and go and get coffee. I get coffee. We have a ch- you know, lovely, lovely. Thanks for, ki- thanks for having me here and the like. Very kind of you. I then go to the airport and send them a text and say, guys, really can't thank you enough. What a wonderful trip joy of joys don't hear anything back from them mm. like a couple of days go past i'm now back in france like guys you know uh, maybe the last message didn't get through or whatever mm. i just want to say rock and yeah. roll new york you know nothing at that point man my heart goes through my backside because i'm like what did i do what have i done you know like mm. i put the gaffer tape on the sofa there was no need for that it was an overreaction it was all too much Ugh. well it turned out <laughs> Uh, the one of the guys I was staying with had had his drink spiked with um, uh, a, a drug called K, KBJ or KGB or something like that. Yeah, and while we'd been out, and he'd got back, and there was you know, suddenly a bit all over the gaff. When they'd um, when we'd when they'd gone to hospital because it was that drug involved and it was a party drug, um, the uh, the police confiscated both of their phones. Right. But essentially, when the boyfriend got back to his boyfriend, and he was still there, you know, fast asleep, like tried to wake him up and he wouldn't wake up. So all of that snoring and whatever that I thought was, uh, you know, really bad and therefore I needed to clear his airway. If I hadn't been there that night and they'd just gone out to that place and he'd have been spiked, then um, he'd have come back, his boyfriend would have gone, oh, yeah, you know, this is just what he gets like. Um, Where it was only my unknowing that made me, Literally gaffer tape him so he could breathe to a sofa. <laughs> is that uh, is that somewhere we can learn from? If somebody's sort of lolling forward and and snoring and snuffling and the air, that we should get gaffer tape and gaffer tape the head up, or or I suppose you'd be, you'd been better calling well nine one one. It would have been in, in yeah. America, I suppose. But uh, well, the thing was, you know, there was nothing about our situation that made me think it was a medical emergency. It was just we'd all been out, mm. you know, we were all coming back, and you know, a couple of hours. I mean, by this point, it was like seven o'clock in the morning or something, you know. <laughs> So, yeah, um, a bit of a weird one. Not necessarily one I would leave in the podcast, to be honest. Uh, my... <laughs> well, no, it's an interesting story. We've run over a bit of time because when you say I saved somebody's life in New York on the back of going there in the middle of a holiday to see 
you know, relatively, uh, would be fair to say, relatively obscure act. Um, fair enough. So, yeah. uh, uh, but anyway, that's that certainly uh, was. I found that an interesting uh, story. That is the end of your the seven wonders. Thank you for you know describing <laughs> them. I um, I know I have to choose the wonder of wonders from your list of seven. The one which struck me as particularly wonderful, as you described it on the in the podcast. And um, I was going, when I saw your list, I thought, oh, I know, I'll go for the woods because that's an interest of mine, because yep. of the Woodland Trust and so forth. But I think that's a bit too, uh, that's too much of me just voting with my own uh, preferences. <laughs> so I think uh, the, the one that you made uh, such a great case for and great advocacy for was The Good Place, uh, the oh. sitcom. So I'll put that as your wonder of wonders. And it's slightly intriguing as a, as a, as a why why should that wonder be in there? So that's the one I'm going to go for. The, Fantastic! Well, I'm delighted. Honestly, I think um, I I have been an evangelist for that show for some time. There is nobody who knows me who hasn't been bored rigid yes. uh, with how good that show is. So I'm delighted to yeah. <laughs> now also form that place in the hearts and minds of your listening throng. Well, uh, I mean, I, I could easily have gone for Jim Henson, but he's better established in lots of people's minds as uh, you know, the yeah. late Jim Henson. Um, I'm just going to say this as well. If you enjoyed listening to My Seven Wonders, it would be wonderful if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform, site or provider you found us on. Thank you very much for listening. Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network.